we tend to fall into the trap of uh, self-deterring too often because we of, of the risk of uh, you know potential escalation. But in the the risks of escalation are equally catastrophic for the Russians. You know the Russians don't have a death wish. They don't have uh, less to lose than we do. Welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, the entirely student-run podcast out of Johns Hopkins University. I'm your host, Zach Wheeler, and I'm joined by my co-host, Megan Rudkai. The U.S.-Russia relationship is at a near 30-year low. From the Russian annexation of Crimea, to covert poisonings authorized by the Kremlin abroad, interference in democratic elections, and most recently, a massive cyber espionage campaign against the United States, Russia under Vladimir Putin has become an increasingly dangerous threat to U.S. foreign policy interests, and the risk of escalating conflict is high. In this episode of POFA, we tackle this issue with Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. Our conversation begins with a discussion on Vindman's most recent article in Foreign Affairs, in which he discusses the importance of convening a summit of democracies to fight back against the rise of authoritarian leaders and states. We then dive into Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014, the U.S.-Russia relationship since, and how Vindman believes we should approach U.S.-Russia relations moving forward. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander S. Vindman retired, was most recently the director for Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, and Russia on the White House's National Security Council. Prior to retiring from the U.S. Army, he served as a foreign area officer with assignments in Moscow and for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff as a political military affairs officer. He is currently a doctoral student at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, a Pritzker Military Fellow at the Lawfare Institute, a fellow at Sice Foreign Policy Institute, and a visiting fellow at University of Pennsylvania's Perry World House. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Alex, welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Hi, thanks, Zach. I'm glad to be here. So to start us off today, I'd like to start our discussion with your most recent foreign affairs article in which you argue for a summit for democracies to push back against the rising tide of authoritarianism, say Russia under Vladimir Putin or China under Xi Jinping. Could you give our listeners a brief rundown on the proposal of a democracy summit and other things you talk about in that article? Sure. Uh, well, first I'll mention, uh, you know, as uh, as most of the listenership is also students that I, I uh, was inspired by my um, academic pursuits and, and a, a class that we actually mutually share, Zach. And, uh, you know, taking a, a, a shorter version of a, a policy uh, paper and ad adapting that to um, a foreign affairs article. So I would uh, encourage other folks that have any interest in publishing to think creatively and produce work that might might have that kind of crossover. Uh, for this foreign affairs piece, I actually thought I was thinking about this for, for a significant period of time. Uh, how do we deal with the accumulated hazard of the authoritarian world, if not collaborating, at least working concert towards mutual their own mutual self-interests and uh, applying pressure to democracies? And I thought about kind of the historical patterns of democracy and how uh, you know very early experiments in democracy, uh, a, a former an early version of this, the draft included like you know some some sort of homage to uh, ancient Greece and Rome and uh, the, the external attacks by uh, Sparta to, to defeat one and the internal divisions and external attacks to defeat the other. And I kind of as a historian, I, I was my undergrad degree. 
Uh, I thought about the kinds of hazards that historians might judge affected democracy, the era of democracies. Um, and I started considering this this notion of the, the fact that democracy is relatively young and the era of democracy was really dri driven by the emergence of the United States, um, uh, you know, only a couple hundred years ago. And the accumulated dangers uh, after the, the U.S. left its moment of unipolarity, uh, short-lived couple of decades at most, less than that probably a decade or so after the end of the Cold War and the the you know the rise of uh, authoritarian states, um, and you know looking at it from this kind of broad systemic uh, perspective allowed me to. Uh, Take a look at the this the fact that there have been net losses or setbacks at least with regards to democracy, uh, struggling democracies backsliding, established democracies under attack through uh, you know through means that we had not experienced before. It was it was difficult. We had two oceans between us and our adversaries, uh, and now our adversaries are uh, relatively easily able to reach across the uh the oceans through information uh, and technology and uh, and attack us and uh you know the 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 death of distance um how that's affecting all democracies and then what how do we address those kinds of systemic issues can the us with its still uh, you know preeminent but uh, diminished role manage these issues on its own and the answer was 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 no uh, and the, the question then became, okay, well, what can we do with our fellow democracies uh, to um, harden ourselves uh, from the legitimate longstanding internal divisions and from external attack that is exploited, uh, that is exploiting these uh, longstanding internal divisions that democracies face and the, the lagging uh, ability to to deal with some of these challenges with regards to, uh, you know, being a little more discerning with regards to information coming in and understanding what's truth, what's uh, what's what's an information operation, and so forth, and that's kind of the idea of uh, uh, of the um, the summit, the democracy summit. Now, this new this this idea is not entirely new. I'm not, I can't claim it. Uh, but, um, I mean, there were other, uh, uh, folks have, have, that have written about it, but I guess I couched it as this idea of an existential threat from the rise of authoritarianism, uh, uh, and what democracy needs to do. And the prescription was relatively straightforward. Take the, the, um, best practices from our fellow democracies. We don't have all the answers and figure out how to solve these issues, in some cases, these democracies have been facing information operations from our adversaries, cyber attacks, uh, you know, um, uh, military coercion, uh, uh, more than we have, and we could learn something from those democracies, and then um, also share the burden of dealing with uh, with the systemic issues and the systemic uh, threats. And the way I think we do that is, you know, not not everybody's going to contribute equal parts, uh, but uh, everybody should contribute something, and there should be we should eliminate free riders, um, both because of the fact that the the U.S. can use that kind of assistance, but also the U.S. is not willing to bear the systemic load by itself. And the final idea that I guess I proposed was um, the idea that there should be 
reciprocal actions, not re- reciprocity, which implies you know reciprocity across the entire bilateral relationship, but re- reciprocal actions, reciprocal responses uh, in response to attack. So, concrete example would be uh, this seemingly you know intel espionage uh, related cyber attack on uh, on the U.S. Uh, uh, emanating from Russia. That that should not go unanswered. And in order to um, deter future attacks, in order to deter uh, information operations and interference in internal affairs and interference in, uh, interference in elections, the U.S. should look at reciprocal actions. They could be symmetric in the same domain. They could be asymmetric, but some some means to establish deterrence is essential. I'm really interested in your idea of you know democracies working together you know to harden themselves against potential threats. And I'm interested, you know, how might you know countries decide which democracies to invite to the democracy summit, or which countries to work together with? Um, might that be a controversial process? Yes, Megan. Thanks. That's a you. you that's a toughie right there. Uh, I frankly, in certain ways, uh, sidestep that issue. I think that is going to be a very, very tricky question um, because, you know, for for a lot of different reasons, but the primary ones being. You know, how do we uh, determine who to invite and who not to invite to the so-called party? And um, what does that mean for the, the uninvited? Do they then kind of uh, do the do the authoritarian states, the non-democracies, then have uh, easy uh, access, uh, you know, purchase to um, to incorporate them into a different block? I, I think uh, the I, the easiest, the, the, the best idea is certainly the, you know, the there's a clear cut line. On which ones we would want to, do, if we had to draw a list, which ones we would want to invite. But to make this process both transparent and uh, inclusive, I think the way we would do this is we'd probably invite just about everybody, and uh, we would not look for consensus-based decisions where you you would have everybody come together and uh, then you have a kind of the lowest common denominator somehow skewing. The principles emerging from this uh, from this summit uh, watered down. What you would have is out of the participants, you would have the part. There's a good term of art which, for for some reason, is, is escaping me right now. But it's it's a there we go coalition of the willing that participates and signs on to these things. And what ends up happening in that kind of scenario, it's not coercive. It's kind of uh, in, enticing when you have all of the leading democracies uh, sign on to the most kind of progressive in the, in the dictionary version of, of the, of the term, not, not in the political sense, but the most progressive notions on how to defend and advance the interests of democracy. The, the idea being that you're hardening established democracies, supporting struggling democracies and advocating for uh, uh, democratic values. And you have uh, states to sign on to that and, um, pledge contributions rather than, you know, looking for something. And and this leaves also room for other states to join down the road if they're not comfortable joining immediately. But this kind of format is inclusive, it's transparent, and it doesn't create a kind of uh, a very, you know, us versus them type paradigm. Uh, I, I would, you know, I know this is an interview for me, but I'd be curious uh, as to if you had a reaction to that and if you had a follow-up question specifically on on managing, um, you know, inviting states in that manner. Yeah, Alex, I, that's 
really interesting, Megan. I'm sorry to jump in there, but I did read um, James Goldgeier's response to the article. And it's interesting because we actually had um, Megan interviewed James Goldgeier like two weeks ago for or three weeks ago for NATO. Um, and I think it's interesting. I, I think you're probably right, Alex, in order to be inclusive. Um, it's probably necessarily uh, necessary to invite everyone and then do a coalition of the willing. But it's also kind of funny because then you'd end up with a summit of democracies where not everyone's actually a democracy. So <laughs> it's a tough call, I'd say. Yeah. So I, you know, my, my thought on that point is that it's still a summit of democracies because the principles that are emerging from it, um, you know, the compact that's emerging from it is, is uh, oriented on promoting democracies. So, you know, if, if states choose to uh, uh, attend as observers, that's one thing I'll tell you uh, that, that response, it was an interesting response. I, I, you know, I read it attentively. And what I settled on was there was this notion of that it was too ambitious. We have a lot of baggage emerging from the last four years, um, and that you know we need kind of less uh, bold, more nuts and bolts type um, solutions. I think there's some merit to that idea, and, and there you know there's there's a, a, an element of pragmatism. But I think, frankly, this 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 moment of uh, existential threat warrants bold solutions, and just because it's hard. And we have to work out issues like, you know, who to include, uh, how to manage, uh, you know, the response from non-democracies doesn't mean it's not worth doing. And if we want the, the world to join us in burden sharing, if we want to to have other democracies contribute, uh, there's really no other format to do something like this. NATO is obviously not sufficient. It's uh, your Atlantic centric. Uh, there are a lot of democracies that have very kind of divergent um, historical experiences, uh, divergent views, we would want to include the South Koreas, the Japans, the Indias that have unique perspectives and unique contributions that could offer. And really a, a forum of this kind, uh, a forum of this kind is really the only way to address it. Uh, I think, you know, uh, uh, extreme challenges or difficult challenges weren't uh, bold solutions. I think it's really interesting, including, you know, more democracies rather than fewer to get those, you know, increased perspectives. And I think also your um, proposal, you know, coalition of the willing, that does prevent sort of the lowest common denominator policies that you might get, you know, if you know, one or two members are refusing to do certain things and the whole policy has to be taken down a notch. And we've seen that in some other um, you know, organizations. But I'm wondering, um, you know, if multiple countries within the Summit for Democracies got together and put forward a proposal that you know did not support democratic values, and it was a coalition of the willing in that direction. Would there be a mechanism you know, for other countries to stop that proposal going forward? Maybe this you know idea is far fetched, and you know, no, I think that's that's an excellent uh, point, Megan. I'll tell you, I I wrote my own response to to this pr uh, proposal, like if uh, from a, uh, the perspective of of China, and one of the ideas that I advance is that they kind of hold a, a um, opposing conference of the same nature. Uh, I think that including them and having them attempt to kind of from within the framework of this of the summit attempt to, to play the spoiler role, that's fine. It, it leaves a kind of a stark contrast between the proposals of uh, the democratic world and the non-democratic world. Certainly they advocate for, uh, you know, uh, notions of, of state sovereignty and things of that nature. But if when you have, you know, 
the U.S., India, all of the leading uh, uh, European uh, democratic states and and beyond um, sign on to something. And then, you know, you have a, a fraction of those states uh, sign on to a non-democratic pact. I don't know. Would 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 a state want to do that unless they're in that? Co- what kind of state would do that? Right. You'd, you'd have certainly China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, uh, uh, you know, sign a Venezuela sign on to that stuff. Uh, that kind of stuff, but who else would want to join that kind of uh, compact, right? Uh, whereas on the other side, you have you know all the the the, the in spite of our difficulties, the kind of the leading democracy signing on to to a principles based uh, kind of prog- again dictionary definition of a progressive comp- uh, democracy compact. That's true. I do wonder if you know potentially China or Russia could strong arm especially China some of the states that it is investing in um, yep. to sign on to some of its proposals but i think your point is really good that it would put in stark contrast the values of you know the chinas and russias of the world versus you know the other you know, more true democracies we might say um, in the dictionary sense uh, and I, I think that's right megan i'll tell you that's this was another point i had in my my response to my my article was that they would probably use economic uh, coercive tools. Um, but again, the whole idea of the democratic compact is to support uh, established democracies. I'm sorry, um, uh, harden established democracies, uh, support struggling democracies and uh, advocate for values and do that with resources behind, um, you know, the, the principles. So that could, that would come in the form of aid, technical assistance, uh, the kinds of things that you would want to do with regards to protecting uh, your your national security assets from um, you know from acquisition from foreign powers or uh, you know countering information operations campaigns, some way to add transparency and um, you know uh, I guess uh, shine a light on on uh, disinformation narratives, whether that's you know something along the lines of historical. Uh, Propaganda about AIDS emer- being, you know, a weapons design emerging from the United States, uh, as as you know, the Russian narrative, um, KGB narrative uh, developed in in um, Africa. But those types of things, you know, you you put resources behind it, and then it makes it makes it less appealing. You make it it makes it less appealing for uh, or harder for for states to try to coerce. And I think this is a really important topic. Um, how might you respond to critics who might say that the Biden administration should focus on more domestic issues? Oh, I, so you know that's that's. Uh, I think there there's a um, an absolute synergy in these ideas because we are not the only ones that are facing this this um, this uh, threat of the rise of the isms, uh, ethnocentric nationalism. You know, racism is in, is in, is typically endemic and it's a problem in Europe too uh, because they have their own kind of their their own uh cultural historical composition and uh the reality of of the world and mobility uh and suggests that it's more than just the color of your skin that makes makes you a uh an Italian or a, you know a Frenchman or something of that nature so i i think the, there are common solutions for our probably our greatest domestic challenges that we could come up with in unison, uh, best practices. I'll tell you that, uh, you know, and maybe a good example is the fact that although we have a issue with um, uh, systemic racism against our our black population in the United States, historically, over the course of generations, 
we've done pretty well at incorporating immigrant populations. Uh, it's taken, it's not like a, uh, a snap of the fingers uh, to do that, but we've done it over the course of generations. You know, uh, uh, people have, have, have uh, self-identified and we've accepted them as Americans. I think in, in France, for instance, it, it, it's uh, assimilation is harder. So we might have some solutions that might be beneficial. I think uh, at, on the same note, I made the point earlier that we'd we'd get some solutions from our uh, um, friends and allies on how to manage um, everything from from hybrid warfare to um, you know illicit finance from our allies and how they dealt with some of these issues to to uh, stem the influence of authoritarian states in, in the US. So I think it's, you are actually addressing your dom- domestic issues by, by convening something like this. So Alex, I, I, I'd like to s- shift gears a little bit on our conversation, even though I've, I've really enjoyed it so far, um, to talk a little bit about events that have shaped US-Russia relations and, and maybe you know, why we even need a democracy summit in the first place. And what I'm interested in is, is 2014. So in February 2014, amidst crisis in Ukraine, Russian soldiers without insignia, known as the Little Green Men, entered Crimea and took over government buildings and military sites, eventually leading to a dubious, at <laughs> to, to put it lightly, referendum and the formal annexation of Crimea by Russia. At the time, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you were in Moscow working as a foreign affairs officer or foreign area officer, excuse me. Could you tell us a little bit about your reaction to that as it unfolded? Sure. You know, it was interesting. I, I actually was looking at uh, this particular chapter in my uh, forthcoming memoir and uh, had a chance to kind of re- review and, and re- refresh my uh, my memory b- before this um, this podcast. So uh, it's it's interesting that we certainly were watching very closely. I was the assistant army attaché in Moscow, um, and had been serving in Moscow for about a year and a half at that point. Not quite a year and a half, but about a year and a half, managing our uh, military bilateral relationship, engaged in kind of you know the the um, military military to military cooperation. And uh, getting definitely getting a very good feel of how uh, the Russian defense and security forces operate. And as the these events started to unfold in Ukraine, I had a chance to actually visit Kiev not too long before um, the the some of these things unfolded. I want to say I guess it was in the later part of 2013. Uh, I I saw the momentum. Um, shift in terms of the Ukrainian population desiring closer integration into the EU as opposed to being under the thumb of um, the Russian Federation, you know, a historical pattern centuries old uh, of uh, Russian domination of Ukraine. And um, certainly there was wide recognition that of the fact that the Russians would not, would uh, the Russian interests Vital Russian interests uh, lay in keeping Ukraine in its orbit, but nobody really expected Russia to be so hands-on and so uh, militarily aggressive in terms of um, staking its claim to Ukraine. I think there was, if 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 this situation was, if we were focused on Russia, and uh, you know the right expertise was 
monitoring this and wargaming it and doing something called red teaming where you kind of take the uh, the enemy's perspective on what's going on it's possible some we could have divined the the notion that the russians would would be aggressive in retaining crimea um but then to kind of wage war on ukraine directly and um uh, basically you know the 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 separatists separatists were uh, separatists kind of in name only. It was Russian, Russian backed forces, uh, taking a very small portion of the population and, uh, you know, paying them to, to fight. But uh, as this unfolded, uh, I was in Moscow and monitoring the situation, trying to get a handle and inform our own government on what was going on. And ultimately ended up spending quite a bit of time on the, uh, Russian Ukrainian border, uh, watching the Russians kind of build up forces in the area and uh, supply a, uh, with material and personnel the, the separatists. Um, and that was really kind of a sea change in our understanding of the Russia threat. If we could have, if we relatively quickly discounted Russian actions in Georgia um, as, you know, a one-off somehow, uh, certainly after 2014, the seizure of Crimea and then the the, the Russian direct attack on uh, Ukraine, we saw that that was definitely not going to be the case anymore. And uh, the Russians were definitely going to be assertive in the near abroad. That the, the period of weakness, the a couple of decades uh, following the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, Russia was gathering its strength and then returned to, to really historical patterns of seeking to advance its interests through um, force and uh, establishing buffer states on its periphery to protect itself. And you know, do you think that the response from the U.S. and its allies was strong enough to this you know, advance? And what is the current situation in Ukraine? Yeah, I, I think in certain ways it was probably as strong as it could have been at that point in time, because, uh, all, you know, I, the answer is no, but it's probably the best we could have mustered at that moment. And the reason is that we just we really weren't paying attention to Russia as a as a near peer threat, uh, being in government and uh, understanding the attention that was being paid to uh, great powers or Russia. There was very little. We were focused on the near fight, um, fighting uh, Islamic extremism. Um, you, the legacy of uh, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, ISIL emerging and so forth. Um, and given that lack of attentiveness, I think the best we could do is start to assemble uh, a firmer response with regards to sanctions and then really try to, to gain a common threat perception with our allies. Now we we sense this issue more acutely than than other folks. Uh, I remember uh, having to convince you know my my German colleagues that in fact the, the Russians were behind the separatist movements, and it it wasn't until they laid their own eyes uh, on a Russian troop movements in 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 um, in that border region between Russia and Ukraine that they kind of came around to the fact that this was this, this was Russian involvement. This was not a civil conflict. But I, I think, unfortunately, that was the best we could do because we took our attention off of these issues 
and, and we're so focused on the the near term challenges uh, of countering violent extremism, which is unfortunately a, a an issue with U.S. Uh, uh, with the U.S. government in general. We tend to be focused on the day to day, the near term rather than the long term challenges, and uh, that puts us behind with adversaries like, for instance, China, which does have the capacity and the you know maybe. I don't want to kind of be uh, over ascribe, um, you know, culture, but it tends to be more long sighted on on issues and and uh, plan for kind of longer periods of time. We, we tend to be less successful in that. Um, I don't, and I don't think that's just the the result of a twenty four hour news cycle. It's always kind of been an issue. The only time we were able to to uh, take a more of a long term view was during um, the Cold War and our fight against uh, the Soviet Union. And that's frankly one of the reasons I, I couched my article as a as a kind of an existential threat to try to um, you know get our uh, policymakers to to start focusing uh, on deeper systemic long term issues. So, Alex, since 2014, there has been a continued deterioration of the U.S. Russia relationship, stemming from covert assassinations and Russia's actions in Syria. Uh, U.S. intellectual, uh, U.S. election interference. So I-, I feel like at this point we definitely do understand the threat that Russia poses, um, as opposed to 2014, where maybe we didn't, as you- as you said. So now that we have that understanding, what is the proper strategy going forward? To yeah, I mean, how do we deal with this enormous issue? Sure. Well, I think. Um... I think there is maybe a better understanding of the threat, uh, but there's um, there's still a lack of consensus on whether Russia is a declining power, or how long they're they're likely to be a threat, uh, whether China is the their preeminent power, and so forth. And these kinds of debates are are, are not particularly helpful. I think um, certainly we know the tools that Russia employs uh, and and China employs against us. And uh, these kind of philosophical arguments about whether Russia is likely to go away if we leave them alone, uh, whether they're you know uh, attacking some sort of secondary interests versus vital interests, I don't know. Uh, if, again, if those are the most important questions to answer, I think if we take a look at at the kinds of dam- the kind of damage that they've done uh, over the past decade, it's it's substantial. And um, it warrants a uh, more robust response. So one of the things I think we, we need to start doing is is what I advocated for, again, in, in this article, is we need to, to, to take reciprocal actions in a response to Russian interference in our internal affairs. Uh, we cannot uh, afford to, you know, be dismissive of a Russia that, if anything, is antagonized by our dismissiveness and are uh, couching them as uh, a secondary power uh, or declining power and is likely to, to uh, precipitate even more kind of egregious, uh, aggressive behavior. And we need to start responding and, and imposing uh, greater costs. I think sanctions have been somewhat effective. Certainly, they've been effective in depressing um, Russian GDP and affecting their ability to spend resources on everything from you know, their national programs to um, rearmament programs, but that's not sufficient. They're willing to bear bear those costs. 
And one of the things that we probably should start considering doing, consider doing, uh, and it, it's it makes us squeamish, it makes us uncomfortable, is if the Russians are willing to exploit existing weaknesses within the uh, uh, the West, legitimate issues uh, that they could then inflame, like uh, systemic racism. Russia has massive challenges, its own massive internal challenges, and. The the question is, would they continue to attack us if they had to kind of look in the mirror and face their own internal challenges if we chose to expose those challenges uh, our, ourselves uh, by, again, you know, looking at means to achieve deterrence by uh, exploiting their own weaknesses? I think the answer is no. Uh, they would they would become uh, more defensive and more cautious, and choose not to uh, employ those same kinds of tools. And the same goes for for China, for that matter. And we really need to uh, be careful, deliberate. We need to be judicious. Identify what our interests are in a particular scenario. Uh, you know, if it's a, if it's an attack on the U.S. domestically, it's a vital interest. If it's something more remote, if it's competition over Central Asia, it's important, but it's not vital. We need to calculate what our resources are. And we also need to understand you know, what, what our resolve will be to follow through on whatever policy prescriptions we have. And uh, based off of those calculations, make a determination on how we respond to, uh, to, to uh, Russian threats. So it's not a uh, you know one size fits all solution. It's it's really frankly uh, quite realist and pragmatic, um, you know, with an overarching idea to be to to adhere to our uh, democracy compact and our liberal values, but uh, applying some pragmatism to these notions um, to achieve our you know national security objectives. And I think those are the types of steps we need to take as uh, the, uh, the, as the U.S. and our policymakers should look at carefully. I think the strategy you've described is really interesting, um, you know, pragmatism, realism, but, you know, with democratic values um, focused on deterrence. And I mean, I'm wondering, because some scholars have suggested a potential reset of relations with Russia as the solution to, you know, maybe, you know, to, to lower tensions. And I'm wondering, you know, what is a reset? What does a reset mean? And what have we learned from the previous attempted reset from the Obama administration in 2009? Yeah, uh, I, I think uh, I, I hope that uh, the word reset uh, exits the, you know, the policy lexicon uh, for the foreseeable future until, you know, we could we could somehow look past the baggage. I think uh, what you have is um, every time a new administration comes in, it'll come in with its own ideas. It'll uh try to take a cool, calculated assessment of the preceding um, administration, uh, hopefully um, protect the gains of that administration, which in the case of the Trump administration uh, exists, but they're very few, and then con continue to make uh, progress. I think a re in this case, um, there has been a, a absolute... Um, absence of a response to to the kinds of threats that, that Russia poses. Yes, the US government has uh con con done made some progress below the you know the chief executive and uh, the White House level at um uh, 
gaining a common threat perception with our allies, and we've done uh, we've made progress on on sanctions. But uh, the messaging and the um, use at other more hard power tools to uh, achieve deterrence and punish Russia for its transgressions have 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 been uh, overlooked and set aside. So a reset in this in this case doesn't make sense. I mean, you could maybe almost argue for a kind of reset with with China, um, you know, something that uh, looks to does that does not is not regressive and uh, somehow reverses the the now somber view of the kinds of threats that uh, China faces. Um, that looks to kind of uh, balance out uh, economic uh, China's economic coercion and um, its use of uh, economic power to undermine uh, democracies. With with Russia, you're so you're you're very far away from that kind of a notion. You're looking at probably in, initially uh, looking at some punitive measures to address the uh, uh, internal attacks in 2016 and so forth, uh, cyber attacks and so forth. And then probably in the, in the I would hope in the, in the uh, first six months, certainly in the first year, having a, a uh, summit between the two leaders in which uh, they communicate their respective positions, the U.S. could articulate a resolve to protect its vital interests and the consequences of that, those vital interests, uh, and uh, kind of baseline the the relationship moving forward. And I think one of the things that could be helpful in this regard is having uh, tools, you know, publicly declared and on the books. Uh, the fact that you would be willing to use uh, cyber uh, defensive cyber me- uh, measures to uh, to prevent Russian cyber attacks. The fact that you would resort to sanctions in particular situations. And you wouldn't address all of them, but what you would do is say, if this happens, these are the consequences. And I think that kind of that format of um, of policy is is better than you know a, a much much more ambiguous. Well, there'll be a cost imposed if you if you uh, you know transgress type of scenario, and uh, you know transparency. Uh, then instantiate that with, um, you know, w- with actually implementing the the kinds of costs that you have declared you would uh, would be a, a good way to deter Russian action. So, Alex, I don't I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but at the start of the interview, we you talked a little bit about the most recent Russian cyber attack, um, partly solar winds, but it seems like it actually might be more than that at this point. So under the strategy that you you just outlined for us of a kind of reciprocal pragmatic approach, how do we respond to that kind of cyber espionage, um, if at all? Yeah. What I find interesting, um, you know, we tend to kind of mirror image. Uh, even now, we tend to mirror image extensively with, with our adversaries. And uh in this case, it's hard to really uh, to see ourselves in the, in this kind of Russian attack. I, I would say that if we were to conduct this kind of operation, we would be mindful of the risks of escalation uh, w- with regards to the Russians. We'd be once we gained access to uh, systems, we'd be very cautious about spillage and uh, how that could you know affect the bilateral relationship. Whether we're crossing a threshold that goes uh, beyond, you know, espionage and intelligence gathering, 
to something far more substantive like a cyber attack. The Russians obviously are you know, either not sophisticated enough, which I don't necessarily believe, or could frankly care less about the way that, uh, that a situation like this could spiral and escalate. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll go maximalist to extract everything they can, whether that's for, you know, state espionage purposes or something that could sell for, uh, you know, corrupt economic purposes, whatever the case might be, they'll, they'll pursue the, this, this kind of strategy. So I, I think um, that we're what we're probably looking at is um, something that is has to be a lot more robust and uh, assertive and aggressive uh, than the probably the defensive cyber activities that we we had considered thus far. Something that could um, you know there's always a risk with employing a, a, a cyber tool because once it's exposed, it's, it's, it's perishable, it, it disappears. But this is one of those cases where we'd probably want to employ some of our more robust tools to uh, inflict some pain, impose some costs, uh, you know, deny, hopefully deny the benefit, you know, delete some of this uh, the stuff that's um, that is that the Russians have acquired. And uh, again, start breeding a um, paradigm of deterrence. This paradigm of deterrence is really interesting, especially how um, you mentioned before, you know, potentially, you know, if Russia is willing to inflame domestic tensions in the U.S. for Russia's benefit, then the U.S. may consider taking similar action against Russia as a means of deterrence to have Russia focus on their own internal issues rather than continue to provoke the U.S. And I'm wondering... Is there a potential that this sort of practice might backfire, that Russia, in order to make the U.S. stop inflaming its domestic problems, it would actually become more aggressive towards the U.S.? You mentioned that earlier that Russia is maximalist. They might take this maximalist approach. Is there a possibility that this strategy of deterrence might backfire into you know, the opposite of deterrence? Um, so the answer to the question is uh, no, I don't think so. I think... Um, we tend to fall into the trap of uh, self-deterring too often because we of, of the risk of uh, you know potential escalation. But in the the risks of escalation are equally catastrophic for the Russians. You know the Russians don't have a death wish; they don't have uh, less to lose than we do. Um, you know, uh, and I think the fact is that the Russians, in my own experience, the Russians respond to strength. Uh, you know, without getting too much into it, uh, while I was in the Pentagon, I had the chance, I, uh, had the responsibility of managing the Russian side of the, um, deconfliction operation with regard to Syria. And in my experience, I could tell you that the Russians, that, the the several measures that we took to deter Russian aggression, uh, were highly effective in uh, pushing back and uh, establishing a deterrence that prevented the Russians from being, you know, to, from going further in, in their kind of uh, offensive actions. I think a prominent example is, um, you know, that the fact that we, um, when attacked by Russian forces in Deir Ezzor, we we killed some three hundred Russian uh, private military uh, corporate uh, corporation um, members, and uh, those. That did not lead to an escalation, right? And I think, 
you know, that's anecdotal. But again, we tend to follow, and there there are plenty of other examples. Um, we we self deterred with regards to um, the Russian attack on Ukrainian uh, naval vessels in the Kerch Strait. Uh, when I mean self deterred, we had kind of normal presence patrols in the Black Sea, and the the president overreacted due to kind of fear of how that so, somehow either you know provoking Russians or uh, upsetting uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, and uh, we, we decided not to take action. And, uh, you know, that that ended up getting the Russians to to be more aggressive, not less. So I think there um, if you understand and follow the, the Russians closely, I think that the again, as long as the policy is declaratory, it's clear what you're doing and why. It actually advances the interest of deterrence. It doesn't it's, it's not likely to get the Russians to, to be more aggressive. Part of that reason is that, you know, unlike a lot of the adversaries that they face in their near abroad, where the correlation of forces, the net, net kind of aggregate of power is in their favor, uh, that is not the case with the United States and certainly not the case with the United States and, and our NATO, NATO allies. And they have no interest in provoking a direct confrontation uh, or kind of making um, the relationship, you know, much more acute than it is now. Um they're trying to figure out a way to save face and kind of, uh, you know, dispense with some of the, th- the the difficulties that they place themselves in, if anything. That's a really important paradigm shift, um, you know, self-deterrence, you know, being self-defeating. And the U.S. should be really mindful of this and what strategies you know, will actually work on, you know, work for the Russian threat. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I've really enjoyed this conversation and I learned a lot. I appreciate uh, Megan, you and, and Zach having me on and I uh, uh, hope that you guys enjoy your, uh, I know that semester's over, so I uh, hope you enjoy your, your uh, winter break and happy holidays. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We'd like to thank the International Studies Department and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Subscribe on iTunes, give us a follow on Spotify, and leave a comment. We'll see you next time.